Hello, bitch, and welcome to my podcast. My name is Katie, and welcome back to my mini-series. Welcome back to another episode of Serial Killers and Narcissists. Now, today's episode, we will be discussing Edmund Kemper. Mm, Yeah, that guy. (laughs) Edmund Kemper, just to sum him up for you. I would say that he is the combination of Ted Bundy and Ivan Milat, literally the two worst people to ever exist. Um, This true crime story is, it's dark, okay? It's really disturbing. It's super graphic. And it's one of those cases where you think, how can this even happen? How do people function in this way? And this is why this case is so interesting. So, Let's talk about why Edmund Kemper is a very well-known serial killer. So Edmund Kemper is very notorious because he was completely unsuspecting. Edmund was a normal guy. He lived an ordinary life. He came from a middle-class background. He was intellectual, friendly, charming, well-spoken, and he was just known as your typical nice guy. They called him Big Ed. He was kind of like this gentle giant almost. But behind this facade, Edmund Kemper was a violent, narcissistic psychopath who kidnapped, raped, murdered, and brutally dismembered at least six women in Santa Cruz, California from May 1972 to April 1973. And he killed his family. Yeah, um, he killed one set of his grandparents, one of his close family friends who happened to be his mother's best friend. And he killed his mom. It's one of those cases today. And honestly, researching this case, there was so much information out there. So this is going to be another long, detailed episode, as I like to do very thorough. So um, relax, you know, adjust those little AirPods, pour yourself a nice cold glass of Coke. And uh, let's go. Edmund Kemper was born in Burbank, California on the 18th of December, 1948. So that makes him a Sagittarius, just like Ted Bundy. I actually saw this meme floating around Facebook not too long ago, and it was a list of well-known serial killers and their signs. I'm pretty sure most people have seen it. But the main serial killers were Sagittarius, Virgo, and Gemini. (laughs) And when I saw this list, I thought, not surprised, Sagittarius is there, and a lot of serial killers are Sagittariuses. And when I saw Gemini, (laughs) I'm a Gemini myself. So when I saw it, I was like, I get it. (laughs) Um, Edmund was the middle child. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. He was born to Edmund II and Clarnell Elizabeth Kemper. So just to clarify, Edmund and his father and his grandfather all have the same name. So Edmund I is the grandfather, Edmund II is the father, and Edmund III is a serial killer. So just so there's no confusion, I'll refer to Edmund the serial killer as Edmund and then his father and his grandfather as Edmund Senior, Edmund Senior Senior, you get it. So Edmund was the middle child. He had two sisters. Susan was the oldest. Um, She was five years older than Edmund. And then his younger sister was Alin and she was three years younger. Um, Growing up, Edmund's parents had a very unstable and dysfunctional relationship. So Edmund's mother, Clarnell, she was a toxic bitch. She was described as a raging alcoholic, difficult to deal with, 
harsh, neurotic, and abusive. It was reported that Carnell suffered from undiagnosed borderline personality disorder, where she would unleash outbursts of rage and abuse onto her family, particularly her husband, Edmund Sr. And just a little side note, because I find this interesting, but women are more likely to have borderline personality disorder than men, and men are more likely to have narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. So I just thought that was interesting because I remember that from my research earlier. So Clarnell was very emotionally abusive to her husband, Edmund Sr. So backstory, um, Edmund Sr. was a World War II veteran. And after the war, he became a nuclear weapons tester at the Pacific Proving Grounds for the US government. And he would have lived through some really traumatic shit. So when he returned to California to be with his family again, he just wanted a normal, ordinary life. You know, he wanted something easygoing, so he became an electrician. And he obviously did this to utilize the skills that he had and just to have an easy life. And he was really happy with this. But Clarnell, no, no, she wasn't happy with this. So she hated her husband's choice to become an electrician and she constantly put him down for it. She would criticize him, complain that he didn't earn enough money for her. She would say that being an electrician was low class and it just wasn't good enough. And she would just constantly emasculate her husband and she was just very emotionally abusive. So Edmund Senior would go on to say that Clarnell was just pure evil and he would say that living in a marriage with her was more traumatic than serving at war which fair enough I mean she sounds like a bit of a bitch like who puts down someone's choice to become a tradesman like and they make good money too I don't know why she had to stick up her ass but anyway they got divorced. So Edmund's parents divorced in 1957 when Edmund was nine years old. And it really seems like their dysfunctional relationship in the home really had an impact on Edmund because he would later say in interviews that he would often fantasize about his mother and father being loving together and caring towards the children. So he would fantasize about his parents being in a healthy relationship. And he said the reality was, quote, much violence, hatred, yelling and screaming, end quote. So when Edmund's parents got divorced, uh, he took this very hard. And to make things worse, Edmund had to go and live with his mother. So Clarnell took the kids and she moved to Helena, Montana, and Edmund's father stayed in California. And this devastated Edmund because he really looked up to his dad and he definitely had a better relationship with him than his mother. So when Edmund moved to Montana, this is when, unfortunately, Clarnell turned her abuse to Edmund. So she was psychologically, emotionally, and physically abusive towards her son. And she created a terrible environment for his upbringing. And I cannot emphasize this enough. The way that she treated Edmund growing up is fucking disgraceful. Clarnell made a point of never showing any love to Edmund. She didn't show love and affection on purpose because she was scared that if she did, it would turn him gay. Seriously. This is what she thought in her small-minded brain. So she intentionally withheld affection and love from her son. 
And that is so sad to me. Like as a parent, you have the biggest obligation to make sure that you give proper love, proper attention and affection to kids to make sure that they turn into well-adjusted adults. So the fact that she was doing this, I mean, we know how it goes. We see this theme in serial killers all the time. There's always issues whenever a parent withholds affection because when they do this, it creates a disturbance in the emotional connection between parent and child. And then this leads to personality issues and behavioral issues in a child. So like I said, Clarnell was very emotionally abusive. She would constantly belittle Edmund, criticize him, humiliate him, constantly blame him for all of her problems, blame the breakdown of her marriage on him, call him a weirdo, and she would pick on his size all the time. So Edmund, he was a big boy, okay? By the age of 15, he reached six foot four. And then he later grew to six foot 10. So yeah, he's a big kid and Clarnell would constantly pick on his size growing up. She would say things like, you're a weirdo and no woman would ever want you. No girl would ever date you. And this was coming from his own mother. And he was nine, Okay. And she would also say to Edmund, you're just like your father, but in a really condescending way because Clarnell hated her ex-husband and Edmund knew that. So Edmund was being constantly verbally abused and it's being drilled into him that he is not good enough. And um, look, I'm all for character building, but not when you're nine. Edmund described his mother as, quote, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. I watched the alcohol increase. I watched the social life drop off. I watched her get bizarre. She had terrible pain in her life from her upbringing, a failed marriage with my father, and I'm a constant reminder of that failure, end quote. So from that quote alone, Edmund is very self-aware and I think he really understands that he did carry a burden from his mother and she definitely projected her own issues onto him as a kid. Clarnell was also physically abusive to Edmund as well, so she would often beat him. Um, Edmund said that one time she was beating him with a heavy belt and buckle and she said to him, you can't scream because the neighbors will think that I'm beating you which is just, that makes me feel so uncomfortable. She's just a horrible woman and it gets worse, but I'll give you some of those stories a bit later on. Um, switching gears for a bit, Edmund had two near-death experiences as a child. So the first one, um, it involved his older sister, Susan. So Susan tried to push Edmund in front of an oncoming train. So he didn't fall on the train tracks and he was fine, but this would be really scary because there's this oncoming train and you just get pushed. <laughs> and the second time, it was Susan again. I know, bloody Susan, what is she doing? Um, she pushed Edmund into a pool and this was the deep end of the pool and he was drowning. Someone had to jump in and save him. Like, I don't know what the fuck is wrong with Susan. <laughs> but anyway, these two experiences would have definitely had an impact on Edmund because at this point, he's living in this home with his mother who clearly doesn't like him and his sisters who clearly don't like him either. So as Edmund got older and he attended school, he was described as difficult and unable to sustain friendships with his peers. 
So it's been reported that Edmund was ostracized mainly because of his abnormal appearance. And like I said, he was a really big boy. So he was always much larger than the rest of his peers. And he became quite antisocial. And when his teachers would be like, what's wrong, Edmund? Why aren't you playing with the other kids? He would say, I'm scared. They're going to hurt me. And Edmund's teachers would later go on to say that Edmund purposely avoided friendships because he was afraid of being bullied. Now, this is where I'm not really for Edmund, and I'm just going to call him out on this. <laughs> I'm just going to call it as I see it, all right? Edmund is a narcissist, and narcissists struggle socially, period. We've seen this before, okay? They lack the ability to connect to others. They can't relate with other people, and so they become loners. And I believe this is the reason why he couldn't make friends. If you look at all the childhoods of the serial killers that I've researched so far, they all struggled socially at school, and they all had traits of NPD and APD. And I think also, as the narcissist that Edmund is, he blamed other kids, so, of course, he's blaming other people for his own issues. And he's also spinning this story that he's scared of the other kids and he's getting sympathy and attention from his teachers. And this is narcissistic supply. This entire situation just screams narcissist to me. The inability to connect, relationships avoid of intimacies, getting attention and supply of teachers through sympathy. And he's being very fucking manipulative. So, sorry, Edmunds. Okay, I'm not in your corner on this one. I'm not not buying it. So sorry. So Edmund was developing a dark fantasy life from a very young age. He was obsessed with death and began having destructive and violent fantasies. As a young boy, he started to express some of this dark behavior. So I'm just going to go through a timeline of all of his odd behavior and we're going to start when he was eight years old. So when he was eight, he was living back in California with his mom and his dad and his sisters. And he used to stalk his second grade teacher. Yeah, so what he would do is he would leave his house at night, go to his teacher's home and watch her through the windows. And when he would watch her, he would be holding his dad's knife from the wall. So it's called a bayonet. Um, it's essentially a knife. I Googled it. And it's this knife that goes on a rifle and the rifle turns into a spear. So yeah, he would sneak out of the house at night, take his dad's knife, stalk his teacher, watch her through the windows, holding a knife. So this is a major red flag because one, he's eight. And two, this is a peeping Tom situation. And we know how this goes. When Edwin was nine, uh, when his parents got divorced, that's when he started to fantasize about killing his own mother. So he had this recurring fantasy about sneaking up on his mother and hitting her in the head with a hammer. Yeah. When he was 10 years old, Edmund would take his sister's dolls and perform weird funeral rites on them before he would decapitate the doll and remove their hands. And look, I know most boys are rough playing with toys growing up, okay? I, I don't have any brothers, but I did grow up with my male cousin, and I remember he was really rough, and I remember that I hated playing with him. But in Edmund's case, it wasn't so much that he was rough, it was more like he was psychotic, because in Instead of just popping off the doll's head, he would grab a knife, heat the knife up, and then slice the doll's head off so it could be the perfect cut, which is so over the top, right? 
And we also know that playing with knives as a child is a huge red flag that something is wrong. Edmund also used to play games with his younger sister, Alin. Now, this part of the story is widely commented on, but Edmund would like to play gas chamber and the electric chair. So Edmund would ask Alin to tie him up in a chair and he would pretend to be strapped down and then he'd be like, okay, sis, flip the switch. And then he would sit there pretending to be electrocuted and he would fall on the floor and like convulse. And then when they played gas chamber, he would pretend to be suffocating to death. Now, a lot of people comment on this. They think it's an early warning sign and kids should not be playing like that. But I'm just going to insert my two little cents, okay? I don't agree. I'm sorry. I just think the kid's got imagination. I think if this was the only thing that he was doing, it wouldn't be a problem. I think if I was a parent and my kid was doing that, I wouldn't find it alarming. I'd probably find it funny. (laughs) I'd probably be like to my future husband, oh, honey, the kids are playing gas chamber again. Do you want to join? But look, like maybe I can't comment because I am a Gemini and I do find it funny. But look, shit got really dark when Edmund was 10. So when Edmund was 10 years old, he killed the family cat. Trigger warning, animal abuse. So Edmund killed the family cat by burying it alive in the backyard. Then he returned a couple weeks later, dug the cat up, decapitated it and spiked its head on a stick. Yeah, so I think at this point I'm on board, okay? I'm on board. We can all say that it's very apparent that Edmund has a sadistic streak. Something is wrong and he clearly has problems. So Edmund later claimed that he experienced joy and power when he initially killed the cat and lied to his family about it. So he definitely got some sick pleasure out of this incident and that's just disturbing. Um, It was around this time as well. Clarnell was forcing Edmund to sleep in the basement. Yeah, I know, this story is just going to keep escalating, so buckle in. So Clarnell would make Edmund sleep in the basement at night because she was convinced that he would rape his sisters. Yeah, true story. She fully believed this. She didn't want Edmund hurting the girls or potentially molesting them. And she fully believed that he would. So she forced him to sleep in the basement. So Edmund would say that sleeping in the basement was a very bad period of his life. He would sleep on a bare bed frame in a sleeping bag and there would be a single bulb dangling from the ceiling on a string. Now that just sounds straight out of a movie, right? Like I can fully see the visual. Now look, this whole basement thing, Okay, I don't agree with the psychological abuse that Clarnell inflicted on Edmund as a kid. And I certainly don't think you should force someone to sleep in a basement. But maybe after he killed the cat, maybe Clarnell was onto something. Okay, maybe it was a good call. I definitely do think her first instinct should have been let's get him help, not just lock him up in a basement and ignore the problem. So let's discuss his teenage years. So at the age of 13... Edmund killed the second family cat. Yeah, he killed another damn cat. So trigger warning, animal abuse 2.0. The family ended up getting a new cat. It was three years after the incident. And Clarnell was like, this should be fine. Edmund's older now. He knows better. 
But no, because Edmund got a knife and he stabbed the cat to death. He then cut off the cat's limbs and kept the body parts. He hid the cat's body parts in his wardrobe and his mother found the remains. Look, serial killers and cats, it is just a theme, isn't it? It happens all the time. And I was curious, so I had to look this up. Now, I don't know why I just didn't think of this myself, but cats are a female symbol. And it makes sense because a lot of white male serial killers target white female victims. It's statistically proven. So it makes sense why white male serial killers tend to kill cats in their childhood. So after this, things went completely downhill. Clarnell's abuse continued to the point where Edmund just couldn't take it anymore. So he ran away. He ran away from home and Clarnell let him. She didn't chase after him. She didn't give a shit. So Edmund ran away to live with his father in Los Angeles, California. And this all happened when he was 14. Okay, so side story. After Edmund's parents got divorced, Edmund's father moved on. So he ended up remarrying. He remarried a lady named Elfried and they had a stepson from Elfried's previous marriage and his name was Gilbert. Now, Gilbert was the same age as Edmund. I think he was a couple years older. But Edmund, he turns up to his father's doorstep and he was a complete shock to him that his father had this entire brand new life. And pretty much the vibe was Edmund Sr. just didn't want his biological son around. And there were issues from the beginning. So the main issue was between his new wife, Elfried, and Edmund. So Elfried, she felt very uncomfortable with Edmund around. Edmund would just stare at her. And would keep staring at her until she became visibly upset and would leave the room. And like I said before, Edmund was a really big boy. So having this large, strange kid staring at you in your home, it made her anxious. She started to get migraines. She was stressed and she just didn't like living with him. And she said Edmund was creepy and she was scared. And look, fair enough, okay? I mean, can you imagine this random big 14-year-old boy staring at you all the time in your home and he just murdered a couple of cats? I mean, I fucking wouldn't like it either. So Elfried raised this issue with her husband, Edmund Sr., and she was begging him to just get rid of Edmund. And he did. So after a few short weeks, Edmund was sent back to Montana to live with his mother and sisters. And their excuse was pretty much that they couldn't afford to keep him. They were like, sorry, we don't have enough money to support him. Return to sender. Bye. But Clarnell, she didn't want Edmund back either. So that's when Edmund was sent to live with his grandparents in Northfolk, California in late 1963. And he was 15 years old. Now, apparently, the way that it happened was sneaky as fuck. So Edmund Sr. took Edmund to his grandparents' home for Christmas. And they spent the holidays together. They had a nice time. And then he left him there. So Edmund, he had no idea what was going on. He had no idea that he was moving. And his father just left him there after Christmas. Like, that's terrible. So I think it's really clear that neither parent wanted Edmund and he was essentially abandoned by both of his parents and Edmund definitely felt that. Edmund said in an interview that he felt, quote, rejected and unloved by his mother and father, end quote. 
Which, I mean, you just got to feel sorry for the kid. Like, sure, he's creepy and large and weird, but he clearly just needs help. So just to recap, um, Edmund comes from a home where his parents had a volatile relationship. He has a cold and distant mother, an absent father, and now he has been rejected by both of his parents. And he has been displaying odd behavioral issues this entire time, and it's being constantly ignored. So Edmund started living with his grandparents. Their names were Maud and Edmund I Kemper. So they actually lived on a farm in California. It was this huge 17-acre ranch, but Edmund hated this. He hated everything about this living situation. He hated living with his grandparents. He hated living on a farm. He hated that his parents had abandoned him. And he was just so angry and full of so much hatred at this point. So the situation in the grandparents' home was tense. Edmund despised his grandmother, Maud, because she reminded him of his own mother. Edmund said that his grandmother emasculated his grandfather just like what his mother did to his father. So Edmund said in an interview, quote, they were both aggressive, matriarchal women. They'd been both daughters of matriarchal women, end quote. But despite this tension, the living situation was somewhat bearable. So Edmund's grandfather, Edmund Senior Senior, he had gifted Edmund a rifle and Edmund was able to keep busy by shooting rabbits on the farm, which his grandparents both allowed and encouraged. And his grandparents thought that this was a really good thing at first because Edmund would be outside getting some fresh air, hanging out with the dog, and it was also a good outlet for his aggression. And then Edmund started to attend a new high school and he really seemed like he was making some progress at this point and things were looking better for him so he was described by his teachers as quiet meek tried not to bring too much attention to himself and had average grades but things took a turn for the worse when the school year was over So what happened was Edmund went back to Montana to visit his mother and sisters during the summer break. So he was supposed to stay there for the entire summer break, which I assume is a couple months. But Edmund came back after two weeks. And when he returned to his grandparents' home, he was different. Edmund was more moody, he was bad-tempered, and he had this menacing vibe. And Edmund's grandmother, Maud, she specifically commented that Edmund had seemed like he had regressed. And Edmund did regress because he said that his violent fantasies returned. So Edmund began fantasizing about killing his grandmother. He had this particular fantasy where he would imagine his grandmother being outside in the shed while he would open fire on her and shoot the shed full of holes. He said that he would carry out this pretend fantasy by going to the shed, pointing the gun, imagining her standing there and would think about what it would be like to kill her. Now, shit really hit the fan when they confiscated his rifle. So, uh, I mean, can you imagine taking the one thing that brings a teenager joy and he's like attached to it? I mean, kids these days, they get aggressive if you take away their PlayStation. I mean, maybe it's an iPad now. I mean, I'm not really up with the times. But the reason why they took away the gun was because Edmund was killing birds and he was specifically told not to. 
He was allowed to shoot rabbits because they were considered pests on the farm that were destroying harvest. But his grandparents said, Edmund, you can't shoot the birds. So they took away his gun and this completely set him off. He was furious, he was angry, and he felt fucking insulted. And we know what happens when narcissists are insulted. They fly into narcissistic rage. And Edmund, well, he had this rage building inside of him every single day until he snapped it. And I think when they took his gun away, this is when he snapped it. So... (laughs) On the 27th of August, 1964, when Edmund was 15 years old, Edmund was at home with Maud in the kitchen and Edmund was staring at Maud, you know, like he usually does, like a weirdo. And he got up from the table and said to Maud, okay, I'm going to shoot some rabbits now. And Maud said, no, you can't. We took away your gun. And they ended up getting into a massive argument. And Edmund, he stormed out of the kitchen, grabbed the rifle and shot his grandmother in the back of the head. As she was slumped over at the table, Edmund then shot her twice in the back. So he killed his grandmother just like that. Um, Once she had passed, Edmund then proceeded to stab her body multiple times post-mortem. Um, The stab wounds were actually revealed during Maud's autopsy, which really confirmed that this attack was a violent rage because the stab wounds were unnecessary. Like she was overkilled. So I guess it just really goes to show how angry Edmund was. So once he had murdered his grandmother, he wrapped her head in a towel and hid her body by calmly dragging it through the house into the bedroom And then he waited for his grandfather to return home from grocery shopping. So when Edmund's grandfather returned home, Edmund Senior Senior was unloading the boot with the groceries. And that's when Edmund ran outside to stop his grandfather from coming into the house. And he shot him in the head, in the driveway, killing him next to his car. So after this, Edmund freaked out. He was confused, he was scared, and he knew that he was going to get caught. So what does he do? He calls his mom. So um, he calls his mom, Clarnell. He's like, mommy, mommy, what do I do? I just shot grandma and grandpa. And Clarnell, she was like, well, son, you need to turn yourself into the police right now. And if you don't call them, I will. So Edmund called the police, um, told them what happened and waited patiently on the porch for the police to arrive. And this again is just such a visual. It sounds like the end of Scream 1. So Edmund was taken into custody and he confessed to everything. When he was questioned by police, they asked him what happened, what went wrong, why did you shoot and kill your grandfather? And Edmund said that he didn't want his grandfather to come into the house and see his dead wife. And he said that he wanted to spare him that pain. So then the police asked, well, why did you kill your grandmother? And he said, quote, to see what it felt like, end quote. So after this, Edmund was incarcerated to Juvenile Hall while the California Youth Authority decided what to do with him. So Edmund underwent a series of tests by a court-appointed psychiatrist and he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. So once he was diagnosed, Edmund was sent to a Tescadero State Hospital on the 6th of December, 1964. 
Now, a Tescadero State Hospital is a maximum security facility for mentally ill criminals who have been committed to psychiatric facilities. Now, at the time, it had 1,600 patients and 800 of those were sex offenders. There were 50 murderers and Edmund. And Edmund was 15 years old when he entered this facility. When he arrived at the hospital, he was assessed by specialist and his diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia was changed. So they end up diagnosing him with personality trait disturbance, passive aggressive type. The characteristics that were identified was anger, low empathy, poor behavioral control, and engagement with dangerous activities as a result of impulsivity. Now, to me, that just sounds like malignant narcissism. And maybe at the time they didn't know what malignant narcissism was um, because that term was first coined in the mid-1960s, but they did diagnose him with personality disturbance. So to me, it's the same. Edmund was also given an IQ test and he scored a massive 145. And I had to Google this and the average IQ is between 85 and 115. So Edmund was almost double the base average. And if you're 145, you're technically classified as highly gifted. So Edmund's pretty intelligent. And bro, he was like 15. So during his time at the prison slash hospital, Edmund never accepted responsibility for his crimes. And he would justify his actions as something that was just beyond his control. And the psychiatrist agreed. They said that the murder of his grandparents was Edmund's way of getting back at his parents for the rejection from his father and the abuse from his mother, and it was essentially displaced anger. So Edmund would go on to undertake several tests because all the doctors were curious as to how his mind works. I mean, he's a 15-year-old murderer. But by undertaking these tests, Edmund was able to learn about what others thought of his crimes because he never took responsibility. He lacked insight and he started to learn the language of treatment. Edmund started to appear recovered. He was regarded as a model prisoner and he befriended his own psychiatrist and ended up becoming his assistant. So Edmund, <laughs> I just this part's weird, but Edmund would work in the laboratory and help administer psychiatric tests to diagnose other patients. Now, I don't know if this is allowed or like a regular thing that happens in institutions like this, but if it isn't, that just goes to show how charming Edmund was and how clever he was in manipulating people. And like I said, Edmund was smart. So by administering these tests and understanding the different criterias for different diagnoses, Edmund was gaining insight. He was learning how these tests could be taken in a certain way to get a desired result. And Edmund used this to his advantage because he was able to appear completely recovered. Edmund's doctors truly believed that he was well and recovered. They reported that Edmund was recovered, that he was doing really well, and that he took pride in doing a good job as being an assistant and this was a really good sign. But the doctors didn't really know what was going on because Edmund, mm, he was learning something else. 
So Edmund was befriending sex offenders who were patients that he was administering these tests to, and he was learning how to get away with sex crimes. Edmund had access to these patients' records and he would read the descriptions of their crimes. And Edmund later said in an interview that he learned a lot from sex offenders. And most notably, he learned that if you wanted to rape a woman, you needed to kill them to eliminate the witness. Edmund said that he was receiving an education on what the incarcerated rapists had done wrong because they got caught. He learned the mistakes that sex offenders would make because they had either left behind the witness and evidence or they attacked a woman that they knew or they attacked in a public place. And Edmund said that by having conversations with sex offenders, he was learning and his violent fantasies became violent sexual fantasies and they were intense. So I actually watched this documentary on this and a psychologist commented that someone like Edmund, who has had violent fantasies as a child, the violent fantasies progress into violent sexual fantasies when they reach adolescence. So this is what is happening to Edmund right now. And on top of that, he is in an environment with sex offenders. So can you imagine how his mindset is developing at this time? And for Edmund, he wasn't developing like a normal teenage boy. Like, I don't really know what you boys think, but I'm assuming that when you are a teenager and you're thinking about sexual things, you're thinking, wow, I want to do that with someone. But people like Edmund, they're developing in a way where they're thinking, I want to do that to someone. There's a really big difference between wanting to do something with someone, like enjoying that, as opposed to I'm going to do that to someone. It's just, yeah, it's really creepy if you think about it. So Edmund, he was keeping this learning and his dark fantasies to himself. So Edmund purposely only spoke about religious conversion and presented himself as clean-cut, conservative, and intelligent to his doctors. And this is what is so scary about narcissists, and this is why they are regarded as one of the most dangerous, because they can literally manipulate doctors and hide their disorder. So everything worked out for Edmund because he was released. So after serving five years at the hospital, Edmund Kemper was released on his 21st birthday on the 18th of December, 1969. Edmund was then paroled and he was released back into his mother's care, which was not a good idea because the psychologist from the hospital specifically recommended and stressed to the California Youth Authority for Edmund not to be released into his mother's care because one, the past abuse from his mother and two, the psychological issues that Edmund had that involved her. But Edmund had nowhere to go. So he was being released back into society as a young adult with no money, no work, no home. And so he had no other choice than to go into Clarnell's care. So during the next few years following his release, Edmund continued to demonstrate to his psychologists and his parole officers that he was well and completely reformed. And from this, Edmund was able to charm his parole officers into agreeing to permanently expunge his juvenile record. I know what the fuck he fucking killed two people and his record gets wiped like it never happened 
That's insane. Now, look, I'm all for reformatory, okay? If you know me, I give out second chances all the time. (laughs) But look, reformatory for children, I fully support. But he murdered two of his family members at the age of 15. There's just no coming back from that one. So let's now discuss his young adult life post-serving time at the hospital. So as I said, Edmund was released at the age of 21 and by this time he had grown to 6 foot 10 and he weighed 133 kilos. So he was a big ass boy, okay? And uh, he moved in with Clarnell who is now living in Santa Cruz, California. Now just to explain this area because it is the main location for the story, uh, Santa Cruz was a small beach town in California in the 60s and then the university popped up in 1965 and it attracted a lot of young people to the area. And it was also during the hippie era, so it was a very laid back, chill community, small beach town, no trouble kind of vibe. Now, Clarnell, uh, she had been already remarried and divorced by the time Edmund returned home. And she had obtained employment as an administrative assistant at the University of California on the Santa Cruz campus. But living with Clarnell, just as the doctors expected, was the same toxic ass environment as before. So Edmund and his mother would fight all the time. They would constantly have the most hostile arguments. They would yell and scream at each other and neighbors would hear it. Edmund would later say that Clarnell would hound him relentlessly about the most trivial problems. He said, for example, that they would argue about whether he should get his teeth cleaned. Which just, like, why even fight over that? In an interview, Edmund said, quote, My mother and I started right in on horrendous battles, just horrible battles, violent and vicious. I've never been in such a vicious verbal battle with anyone. I would go fists with a man, but this is my mother, and I couldn't stand the thought of my mother and I doing these things, end quote. Now, Edmund was just lost. He didn't have a social life and he was very inadequate socially. And just to put it into perspective, he had just been in a psychiatric hospital for most of his young adult life. And those are really important years socially. Like, do you remember when you were 15 to 21? How many milestones did you go through? Like, I feel like I've had so many different chapters in my life. And I remember being 15 to 21, you grow so much socially. So, Edmund's missed out on all of this and he has spent these years in a hospital for the criminally insane with sex offenders. Like you would be so fucked, I think. And imagine making new friends too. Like what can you say about yourself? Like, hi, I've just moved here. Um, Like you'd have to lie because you couldn't say, hi, my name's Edmund. Um, I was just in a mental institution for the past five years because I killed my grandparents. Um, Do you just want to like hang out and maybe see a movie? Like maybe we can go and see the movie Psycho. Um, I hear it's really good. (laughs) Ah, sorry. I make myself laugh sometimes. (laughs) But that was funny. I love a bit of improv. It's good when I go off scripts because... (laughs) I'll stop talking. Let's just get back into the story. So Edmund was lonely and he felt really uncomfortable around other people. And his mother didn't help him with this transition. Edmund would ask his mom to introduce him to kids on campus and she would say no. But um, despite this, Edmund did try his best 
to an extent. Um, he attended a community college and it was being monitored by the California Youth Authority. So it was something that he had to do. And he did well. He finished his studies and then he tried to enroll in the police academy because he wanted to be a state trooper. So it seemed like he had some aspirations, but his application was denied because he was too tall and he exceeded the maximum height requirements for an officer. So he ended up working odd jobs as a laborer and he eventually obtained gainful employment with the state of California's Department of Transportation in 1970. 71 when he was 23 years old. But Edmund wasn't satisfied with this because he really wanted to be a police officer and he felt devastated and rejected. So he tried to fulfill this aspiration by hanging out at local cop bars. So he would go to this bar, it was called the jury room, and he would hang out and talk to the local Santa Cruz police officers and he ended up making friends. And funnily enough, the police really liked him. Uh, They ended up developing a genuine friendship with Edmund. He was respectful and enjoyed their stories and they nicknamed him Big Ed. So that's where the nickname comes from. And they just thought he was a really nice, friendly guy. The police described Edmund as friendly, outgoing, and likable. So Edmund eventually moved out of his mother's home and he ventured out on his own. He moved in with a roommate, but his mother continued to be overbearing. She would call him all the time, make demands, would turn up at his house unannounced where she would berate him and belittle him. And she just continued to be controlling, demanding, and verbally abusive. But then Edmund got into an accident. So he was riding his motorcycle and a motorist hit him and he broke his arm. So he ended up moving back in with Clarnell because he had no money. He was being evicted from his apartment because he wasn't working and he obviously needed the extra care. So he moved back into his mother's home. But um, from the motorcycle accident, though, Edmund did end up suing the driver and he got a settlement of approximately $15,000 and he used some of this money to purchase a yellow 1969 Ford Galaxy. Now, this is where the story takes off. Once Edmund had purchased this vehicle, that's when he started to notice a large number of young women hitchhiking in the Santa Cruz area. And that's when Edmund had a stroke of genius. Edmund decided that he would use this vehicle to pick up young female hitchhikers because one, he was off work due to his injury and he had nothing better to do. And two, he wanted to meet women and his violent sexual fantasies surfaced. So after purchasing the Ford Galaxy, Edmund went out there and he got prepared. He immediately purchased plastic garbage bags, knives, blankets, handcuffs, and other tools, and he stored it in his car. And he stored these items just in case. So this is pretty much his murder kit. But Edmund knew that he wasn't confident socially and he needed to start practicing. He thought that he would do practice runs to build up the confidence he needed to do what he ultimately wanted to do. So he offered rides and picked up at least 150 hitchhikers before he commenced his murder spree. So he would literally pick up potential victims, drive them around, but always took them safely to their destination and let them go completely unharmed. But he said, 
once he felt the urge to want to kill and had reached the point of having sexual fantasies about his passengers, he knew he was ready. He later referred to these violent sexual homicidal urges as little zapples. Yeah, weird. (laughs) So let's have a look at Edmund Kemper in respect to the average serial killer profile. Now, Edmund Kemper was white, male, from middle socioeconomic background. He was aged 24 to 25 years old during the killings. He experienced childhood neglect and trauma. He is a fucking psychopath. (laughs) And he was a chameleon to his environment where he appeared as an ordinary nice guy. Now, let's get into his M.O. So Edmund Kemper would target white women who were young and attractive between the ages of 15 to 25 years old. Most of these women were college students, uh, most of which attended the same college that his mother worked at, and one of his victims was a high school student. Now, all of his victims were hitchhiking in the Santa Cruz area, and they were a complete stranger to Edmund. Now, Edmund Kemper had a very distinct pattern in the way that he operated, where he would drive around college campuses and neighboring suburbs until he spotted potential victims. He would then approach his victims in his Ford Galaxy, and he would offer them a lift either to or from campus. Sometimes Edmund posed as a student and would drive around with a university parking sticker that his mother had given him. So once he had his victims in his car, he would drive on highways and coastal roads to throw off his victim's sense of direction before taking them to a secluded area in the mountains. Once he had arrived, he would pull out a gun and would force his victims into handcuffs. Then he'd pull out his murder kit which consisted of knives and plastic bags. Edmund would then immediately kill his victims by either shooting, stabbing, or strangling them to death. Once the victim had passed, Edmund would then take their body back to his apartment, or sometimes his mother's home, where he would strip them naked and pose them while taking pornographic photographs. He would then have sex with the corpses. After he was done, he would then dissect their bodies and decapitate them, usually by using a power saw or an axe. Once he had the severed head, I'm sorry, trigger warning for everything, by the way, he would take the head and have sex with their head. So um, just to give you the the visual that I have, Um, he would have oral sex with the head where he would thrust his penis into the head of the victim's mouth. Sorry, (laughs) it's just what he did, okay? Um, Once he was done, he would then go back over to the body and rape the headless body. Once he was done, he would then dismember the body by cutting it up into pieces and putting body parts into separate garbage bags. Um, he would specifically separate the hands from the rest of the body parts to avoid identification. He would then dispose of the body parts separately into ravines and uh, isolated areas in the mountains. But he would keep the head. So Edmund would keep the heads of his victims for several days so that he could keep having sex with the head. 
Um, Once the head was so decomposed and mangled, he would then dispose the head and one of his victims, he actually buried the head in his mother's backyard. Um, So that's Edmund's MO. Um, Yeah, it's, it's fucked up. Okay, guys. But something that I find interesting is that he only sexually assaulted his victims, except for one, uh, after they were dead. So, um... Yeah, most necrophiliacs engage in raping the victim before or during or after death, but Edmund solely raped corpses, which I think is pretty telling of his self-esteem and confidence. Like, sorry, bitch, but like, is that all you can do? It's like he can only have sex with them once they can't say no, which is why he immediately kills them first, because he only did what he wanted once they had passed. Now, before we talk about the victims, um, I thought I would mention Loma Prieta Mountain because this was one of the main locations where Edmund would take his victims and where he would dispose body parts. So Loma Prieta Mountain is located in Santa Cruz, Northern California, and it's regarded the highest peak in Santa Cruz. And it kind of just looks like your typical mountain. There's wooded areas, grass, trees, and it's a popular spot for climbing, hiking, and mountaineering as per their website. And I also saw that it was advertised on one of those trip planning websites that um, it hashtagged kid friendly. (laughs) Um, And also fun fact, Loma Prieta is a Spanish name and its English translation is Dark Hill, which is so creepy. Now, let's get into the stories of the brutal murders that were committed by Edmund Kemper in the mid-70s. So, major trigger warning, okay, if you know this case, you fucking knew what you were getting into, okay? This one is so disturbing, and it's just going to make you feel a certain way, <laughs> like it's just bad. Um, so, just heads up, uh, oh, no pun intended, uh, but yeah, it's bad, okay? So, huge trigger warning, I'm going to be really graphic, because that's just how Edmund describes these killings, okay? So, um, if that freaks you out, um, I would recommend another episode uh, on my podcast, but they're all traumatic, let's be honest. So let's get into it. We are going to start in May 1972 when Edmund was just 24 years old and he was working at the highway department and living with a roommate. So Edmund's first two victims in his killing spree were Mary Ann Pesky and Anita Luchessa, and it was a double murder. So Marianne and Anita were both 18-year-old students from Fresno State University. And on the 7th of May, 1972, Marianne and Anita were heading to Stanford University to go to a party, but they never arrived and they were last seen leaving campus. Now, the two girls were reported as missing by their families and unfortunately, they were never heard from again. But three months later, on the 15th of August, 1972, Mary Ann's skull was recovered in a wooded area on Loma Prieta Mountain, and unfortunately, Anita's body was never recovered. So Edmund confessed to this murder, and he said that on that day, he was driving around Berkeley, California, and that's when he spotted the two girls hitchhiking on a freeway ramp. He approached them, asked the girls where they were going, and Marianne and Anita said that they were looking to hitch a ride to Stanford University, which was about an hour's drive. So Edmund offered the girls a lift, they accepted, jumped in the back seat, and he started driving. 
On the drive, Edmund said that he purposely drove on highways and coastal roads for about an hour, which completely threw off the girl's sense of direction. Edmund said in his confession, quote, I asked them a few questions and determined to my satisfaction that they were not familiar with the area. I didn't make much effort to deceive them because they were terribly naive, end quote. So instead of driving to Stanford University, as promised, Edmund drove to a secluded wooded area in Santa Cruz, near Alameda, California. Once he reached this secluded area, Edmund forced Marianne into handcuffs and locked Anita in the boot. In his confession, Edmund said, quote, I decided that Anita was more gullible and would be easier to control, so I told her that she was going to get in the trunk. End quote. So Edmund said that his initial intentions were only to rape the two girls, but he said that he knew that he was going to kill them anyway because he knew not to leave a witness. So while Anita was in the boot, Edmund had Marianne in the car. He tried to strangle Marianne by putting a plastic bag over her head and wrapping a bathrobe belt around her neck. But when he pulled on the belt, it snapped and it broke. And while this happened, Marianne bit a hole through the plastic bag with her teeth. So once Edmund saw that, that's when he grabbed a knife and he proceeded to stab Marianne. He stabbed Marianne multiple times in the back, in the side and in the stomach. In his confession, Edmund said, quote, I stabbed her all over her back. She turned around and I stabbed her on the side and the stomach once, end quote. And also just to pause, because he also said this in his confession, which I find really strange. Um, he said, quote, as she turned around, I could have stabbed her through the heart, but her breasts were there. Her breasts actually deflected me. I couldn't see myself stabbing a young woman in her breasts. That's embarrassing, end quote. Like, what the fuck's that? <laughs> Edmund then grabbed Marianne by the chin, pulled her head back and slit her throat. So once he had finished with Marianne, he then got out of the car and walked over to the boot where Anita was. And in his confession, Edmund said, quote, I knew I had to do it to the other girl right then because she had heard all the struggle and she must have known something very serious was going on, end quote. So Edmund claimed that when he opened the boot, Anita asked what was happening with Marianne and he said that he broke her nose by accident and that she should go and help her. So as Anita was getting out of the boot, Edmund pulled out a knife and started stabbing Anita. While he was stabbing her, she was fucking fighting back. So he tried to slash her throat, but he stabbed his own hand. Then he tried again, but she covered her throat. And Edmund was trying to stab her through her fingers. And then he tried to stab her in the eye, but then he knocked her glasses off. And then he proceeded to stab her all over her forearms and just all over her body. And Edmund said that she put up the biggest fight. He said, quote, it amazed me that she was stabbed three times and was still going at it. I tried stabbing her in the front again or towards the throat area and she was making quite a bit of noise and was trying to fight me off and I stabbed her in the forearms. One was so bad you could see both bones and she saw it when I hit. I didn't think it hurt so much as the shock of everything was happening so fast. She looked at it and I could see the expression on her face of shock, end quote. Edmund told police that he was surprised by how many heavy blows she took before losing consciousness. 
Edmund recalled that he watched Anita as she was slowing down, losing consciousness and becoming delirious. He said that she was moaning and waving her arms around, fending off an imaginary assault that was no longer there. And he watched in fascination. And then she passed. Which is so sad. And honestly, I apologize for the graphic detail, but I think it's important because firstly, these two girls put up a massive fight and they fought really hard against a man who was literally five times their size. And secondly, this is how Edmund talks. All of these details come from him and it's weird how he describes everything in such disgusting detail, but then he goes ahead and apologizes for it. Like he literally said to investigators while he was telling this story, quote, I hate to get into so much detail on that, but my memory tends to be rather meticulous, end quote. So after the attack, Edmund took Marianne's body from the back seat and put her in the boot with Anita's body and started driving back to his apartment. But while he was driving back to his apartment, he got pulled over by police for a broken taillight. Yes. So he was literally stopped, spoke to police, and they had no idea that he had two bodies in the back, which is insane. When Edmund arrived at his apartment, he opened the boot and apparently just stared at the bodies. He then took the bodies out of the car dragged the bodies into his bedroom and um, by the way his roommate was out for the night so Edmund had the house to himself and he could do whatever he wanted so he brought the two girls bodies into his bedroom stripped them naked and started taking pornographic polaroid snaps then he had sex with their corpses Um, Once he was done sexually assaulting his victims, he decapitated them and had oral sex with their severed heads. He then returned to the headless bodies where he dissected them, handled their internal organs, chopped off their hands and dismembered the rest of the body. He then put the body parts in green plastic garbage bags and disposed the bags by burying them at Loma Prieta Mountain in Santa Cruz. He then disposed of their torsos and limbs in one location and their hands in another location. But like I said in his MO, he kept their heads. So yes, he kept the two girls' heads for a few days so that he could keep having sex with their heads. And once he was done, he disposed the heads in a ravine. Now, in those few days, when he had kept the heads, Edmund explained this to investigators and he said, quote, I would sit there looking at the heads on an overstuffed chair, looking at them when one of them somehow became unsettled, rolling down the chair, tumbling down the chair, rolls across the cushion, hits the rug and bonk, end quote. Yeah, he literally said bonk. Something else that I wanted to mention, um, at Edmund's trial, Anita's father gave evidence and said that because the police hadn't recovered his daughter's body, they hired a private investigator to locate Anita. And at trial, he said, quote, we tried to do all we could to find her, end quote. And when he said it, apparently his voice broke and he was crying, which is so sad to me. So I just thought I'd mention that because it's about the victims at the end of the day, not this fucking idiot Edmund. Four months after his first attack, Edmund attacked his next victim. So on the 14th of September, 1972, 
Aiko Ku, who was a 15-year-old high school student, was heading to dance class um, in St. Louis. So she was supposed to travel by bus, but she had missed her bus and decided to hitchhike instead so she could make class on time. But unfortunately, she never arrived and Aiko was last seen leaving her home that afternoon. So she was reported as missing the next morning by her mother because her mother had realized that Aiko didn't return home from the night before. And the police suspected that Aiko was a runaway. And her mother was like, absolutely not. She's a good daughter, a good student. She loves her family and she would never just leave. So her mother said to police, quote, she's being kidnapped. I told her I was very much against hitchhiking, but once people hitchhike and it goes well, they can't believe anything can go wrong. Now I think something terrible has happened. That's why Aiko didn't come home last night, end quote. And it's really sad as well because her mother said, quote, normally I would have gone with her. I always go with her to dance classes, but I had so much to do. She was so beautiful last night. So I told her she could go if she took the bus, if she didn't hitch a ride, end quote. And sadly, Aiko Ku's remains have never been recovered and she was regarded as a missing person until Edmund's confession. So Edmund confessed that he was driving on University Avenue in Berkeley that afternoon when he noticed Aiko waiting near the bus stop. So he pulled up in his Ford Galaxy and offered Aiko a lift. And without any hesitation, she accepted, jumped in the front passenger seat. And again, just as he did with Marianne and Anita, Edmund drove on highways and coastal roads to throw off Aiko. But on the drive, Aiko realized that they weren't heading in the right direction and she started screaming. She was crying and she was begging and she was saying to Edmund, please let me out of the car. And that's when Edmund pulled out a gun and pressed it into her ribs. And he said to Aiko, I don't want to kill you. I want to kill myself. I just need someone to talk to. So he ended up calming her down because he was promising her that he wouldn't harm her. So Edmund said that he continued to drive with one hand on the steering wheel and the other hand was pressing the gun into her ribs. Now, when they reached the mountains, Edmund pulled the car over, put the gun back under the front passenger seat and said, quote, there's a roll of medical tape in my glove compartment. Hand it to me, end quote. So Aiko did what he said. She opened the glove box and handed him the tape. He then taped her mouth shut and demanded Aiko to get in the back seat. So again, she did what she was told and she got in the back seat. And then Edmund got out of the car. He went around to the back to open up the side passenger door, but it was locked. So out of some freak turn of events, Edmund locked himself out of the car. So the car was locked. And the keys and the gun were inside the fucking car. So Edmund was like, holy shit. But as the manipulative son of a bitch he was, he convinced Aiko to trust him and let him back into the car. And she did. She unlocked the door for him, which fucking sucks because she obviously had everything she needed to get away. She had the keys, she had the gun, and it's just a shame she was so young. I mean, guys, she's 15. She would have been really trusting and just confused about everything. And he's just such a fucking asshole. So when Edmund got back into the car, he choked Aiko unconscious. And then he dragged her body out of the car, laid her on the ground. And while she was unconscious, Edmund proceeded to rape her. 
And he later talked about this sexual assault and he said, quote, it didn't take more than 15 to 20 seconds before I had an orgasm, end quote which is so fucking disgusting. Like what a terrible person. I absolutely hate that quote. It makes me so angry. Like I, I want to kill him, you know? <laughs> I just feel like what the fuck is wrong with you to repeat those details in your confession for her family to find out about it. He's just a sick fuck, honestly. So once he had sexually assaulted Aiko, he strangled her using her own scarf and killed her. He then wrapped her body in a sheet and put her in the boot of his car. Edmund, again, loves to include these disrespectful little details, but after murdering Aiko, he was heading home with her body in the boot and he stopped at a nearby bar. He stopped at a bar on his way home after murdering Aiko to have a beer. <laughs> he said, quote, after the murder, I'm exhausted. I'm hot and very thirsty. End quote. So he treated himself to an ice cold bevy after murdering someone, and that is fucking psychotic. I mean, that just goes to show his low empathy with everything and how disassociated he is from his own actions. Edmund said that when he left the bar, he went to the boot of the vehicle and actually opened it up to look at her body. He said that he did this because he wanted to, quote, check that she was really dead and to also savor my triumph, to admire my work and her beauty, a little like a fisherman, happy with his catch, end quote. So Edmund then drove back to his apartment, took Iko's body from the boot and carried her inside the house. He then put Iko's body on his bed where he proceeded to rape her corpse. He then began dismembering her body in the bathtub and went on to dissect her body. Edmund said, quote, dismembering the body required a meticulous job with a knife and an axe. It took me about four hours of work, slicing limbs, getting rid of the blood, completely washing the bathtub and bathroom, end quote. So once he was done dismembering the body, he put the limbs into garbage bags, but he kept the head and the hands. And then he went through her bag. Um, he said that he wanted to get an idea of what kind of life Aiko had and he drove to her family home and he said that he was disappointed because the family home looked modest. And look, I don't know what he was expecting, but I remember that I read that Edmund made a comment that he would pick up hitchhikers who were California girls and I don't really want to make any incorrect assumptions, but I know that this was California, it was the 70s, it was kind of hippie times. So maybe Ico just wasn't your typical California girl. So to dispose of the body, Edmund went out on a drive. He drove through the mountains of Santa Cruz and threw garbage bags of her remains out the window. So he's just driving along, throwing out body parts. But Edmund said that he kept her head. Um, he kept Iko's head in the boot of his car for several days, but he said that it started to smell, so he had to dispose of the head. Um, but as I said earlier, Iko's body was never recovered. Edmund did take police to the wooded area where he disposed body parts, and they did recover a handless arm, 
pelvic bones and a rib cage, but it's been unconfirmed whether these were the remains that belonged to Aikoku. So by this point, the police were very aware that something was going on. There was all these missing students who were known to their families as people who would regularly hitchhike. So the police started to notify the public that there was a potential serial killer on the loose targeting students in Santa Cruz who were hitchhiking. So they put out a warning and they said to young people, do not hitchhike. And if you do, make sure it's with someone you know or someone from campus with a university sticker. Now, hello, hello. Edmund's mother worked at the university. Remember, she was an administrative assistant who had given Edmund a university parking sticker. And Edmund would use this sticker when he picked up victims. So this warning didn't help the situation at all. And I think the police should have just said, do not get into a car with a stranger. Period. Now, I just thought I would mention, because it is important to the story, Edmonds moved in and out of his mother's home quite often. So when he had that accent earlier, he moved back in with his mom and then he moved out again and then in again. So when he committed those first couple of murders, he was out living in an apartment with a roommate. And then now for these next murders, he's back living with his mother. So I just thought I would mention that because it's important. About four months after the second attack, the following year on the 7th of January, 1973, Cynthia Ann Shaw, who was a 19-year-old student at Cabrillo College disappeared while hitching a ride to class. So Cynthia worked as a live-in babysitter and she was last seen stopping by a friend's house before heading to the university campus and she was reported missing by her friend on the 9th of January 1973. Now Cynthia, just like the other victims, was regarded as a missing person until parts of her remains were recovered. So 24 hours after her disappearance, a highway patrol officer was driving on a coastal road nearby a cliff and he spotted a human arm sticking out of a plastic bag on the side of the road. The officer did a search of the site and that's when he recovered parts of two legs, an arm and strips of skin on a cliff overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Then a week later, an upper torso was washed ashore in the same location and it was identified as Cynthia's. They were able to determine that the upper torso did belong to Cynthia because they did x-rays of the lungs on the torso and then they compared it to Cynthia's x-rays because she recently had x-rays done a few months back in October in 1972. And then not long after that, a local surfer recovered a left hand which also belonged to Cynthia because they were able to compare fingerprints from the severed hand to fingerprints found in her bedroom. Once they had recovered all of the body parts, forensics were able to positively identify that all the limbs recovered did belong to Cynthia. But unfortunately, Cynthia's head and her right hand were never recovered. So Edmonds provided a confession for Cynthia's murder. He said that on that day, he was cruising around campus and he picked up three different girls, two of which were together and he referred to them as possibilities. He said that he had to quote unquote cancel them out because there were too many people standing around that possibly knew them when they got in the car. In his confession, Edmonds said, quote, all the other conditions were perfect. It had been drizzling. It had been raining real hard and people were getting any ride they could get and the windows were fogging up. But I had given up on those two and I was kind of uptight about it. And driving down the street, I spotted her standing out there with her thumb out. 
end quote. So Edmonds approached Cynthia, offered her a lift to campus, and after driving a short while, Edmonds pulled out a gun and he demanded Cynthia to get in the boot. He then drove a little while longer before stopping near Coralito and he got out of the car, went to the boot and shot her once in the head. Edmund then drove back to his mother's house and he put Cynthia's body in the closet overnight. So he hid Cynthia's body in his wardrobe and he left her there while his mother, Clarnell, was asleep. So the next morning when Clarnell went out to go to work and she left the home, That's when Edmund took Cynthia's body out of his wardrobe and proceeded to rape the corpse. He then took her body into the bathroom where he carefully extracted the bullet from her head and he cut out bullet fragments out of her skull and then he proceeded to dismember her body in the bathtub with an axe. He then decapitated her head using a power saw. Once he had decapitated her head, he took her head and proceeded to rape her severed head. Edmund then disposed of her remains by throwing them off a cliff into the ocean, but he kept the head. So Edmund kept the head at his mother's house for several days so he could keep having sex with the head. In Edmund's confession, he said that he would talk to the head, um, saying, quote, affectionate things like you would say to a girlfriend or wife. End quote. So I guess he was talking to the head like she was his girlfriend, like saying, I love you. Don't be mad at me. It's okay. <laughs> like, I, well, I don't know what the fuck he was saying, but apparently it was affectionate things. Um, then about a week or so later, Edmund buried Cynthia's head in the backyard garden of his mother's house underneath his mother's bedroom window. And he later told police that he positioned her head on an angle when he buried it so that the head was facing upwards towards his mother's bedroom. And he said that he did this because, quote, my mother always wanted people to look up to her, end quote. So the final victims in the co-ed killing spree was Rosalind Thorpe and Alison Lau. So a month later, on the 5th of February, 1973, Rosalind, who was 23 years old, and Allison, who was 21 years old, disappeared from the University of California, Santa Cruz campus. Rosalind was a student studying linguistics and psychology, and she was last seen on campus. And Allison was studying to become a political science teacher, and she was last seen in the college library. Now, the two girls were immediately reported as missing, And unfortunately, the two girls were never heard from again, and there was absolutely no leads in their disappearances. But on the 4th of March, 1973, a skull and jawbone was recovered near Highway 1 in San Mateo County, but the remains were from two different people. When the police searched the area, they found a skull that belonged to the jawbone, and the two skulls were identified as Rosalind's and Allison's. The skulls indicated that Allison was shot twice in the head and Rosalind was shot once. So in his confession, Edmund said that he drove to the campus and spotted the two girls. He pulled up beside them in his yellow Ford Galaxy and offered them a lift. 
Now, Edmund claimed that the girls were hesitant at first, and apparently Alison was super hesitant in getting in the vehicle, and Rosalind assured her by saying, it's fine, look, he has a sticker. So clearly, the girls were hesitant because they were aware of what was happening on campus, and they knew not to travel with a stranger unless they had the university sticker. So because Edmund had this university parking sticker on his car, the girls thought it'd be safe. So the two girls got in the back seat and Edmund only drove for a couple of minutes before pulling out his gun and shooting them in the head. So they were sitting in the back seat, he was driving and he literally shot them in his car on campus. And I have no idea how no one noticed this. He said that he threw a blanket over their bodies and passed campus security, who let him out. Now, Edmund has two versions of this story. He has claimed that he passed through campus security and the security guard was passed out, so he just went through. But he also said that he spoke with campus security and they let him out. And he had told security, oh, these two girls are just passed out drunk. Now, I really don't know what truly happened, but I definitely don't think that he spoke with the campus security and they thought it was all good because I think covering them up with a blanket wouldn't have covered up the fact that they got shot in the head. Like, have you seen Pulp Fiction? So Edmund then drove back home to his mother's house. He parked in the driveway, carried the bodies from the back seat into the boot and began sawing off their heads in the driveway right in the middle of the neighborhood, in public. So I think at this point, he's lost his fucking mind. I mean, he's already lost his mind, but I, I think at this point, he's just gone berserk. So he then wrapped up the bodies in blankets, carried the bodies into his mother's house, took the bodies into his bedroom, and raped the headless corpses. He then proceeded to dissect the bodies by removing the bullet fragments from their skulls, and dismembered the rest of the body. He put the body parts in garbage bags and disposed of the bodies in different locations around the Santa Cruz area. Now at this point, I would like to say that the story is over, that this was the peak of his craziness and now we can start talking about the trial. But no, because this killing spree was Edmund warming up for the grand finale. Edmund finally had the experience the skills, the courage to kill his own mother. Now, this part of the story um, is absolutely fucking insane. If you're unfamiliar with it, uh, you're really going to be shocked. (laughs) So, it's the 20th of April, 1973. Good Friday, actually. Clarnell is 52 years old at the time, and she comes home late after returning home from a party, so she's rolling in late. And Edmund was waiting up for her. So he's sitting in the lounge room and Clarnell comes in and she sees Edmund from the doorway. She sighs and then she goes, oh, you're up. I suppose you want to stay up all night and talk now. Edmund looks at her and said, no, mother, good night. So Clarnell goes upstairs, goes to bed, starts reading a book. And Edmund patiently waited for his mother to fall asleep. So at 4am, Edmund entered his mother's bedroom, bludgeoned her head in with a claw hammer and slit her throat with a knife. Edmund then decapitated his own mother. He cut off her head and then began raping his mother's head several times. I know, I know, I know. (laughs) 
He then put her head on the mantelpiece and screamed at her head for one hour. He then used her head as a dartboard where he would literally throw darts at his mother's severed head. He then took her head off the shelf and smashed it in with a hammer. He then cut out her tongue and vocal cords and threw it down the garbage disposal. And then when he turned on the garbage disposal, the garbage disposal spat it back out. I'm not even making this up. The vocal cords flew out of the garbage disposal into the sink. So apparently (laughs) the material is so coarse that a garbage disposal actually can't grind it down the pipe. Edmund said that even in death, his mother still mocked him because her vocal cords spat back out. Edmund then continued to beat up his mother's severed head and then he returned to his mother's headless body where he raped her corpse. So let's just take a five second break on that one. (laughs) I just can't believe he raped his own mom. Anyway, then Edmund cut off her hands. He dismembered the rest of the body, just like what he did with his other victims. And he put her body parts in a cupboard. Um, Yeah. And then he thought, ooh, here's a swell idea. Why don't I invite Sally over, my mother's best friend? And kill her too. So Edmund gets on the phone and calls Sally Hallett. So Sally was 59 years old and she was really good friends with Clarnell. So he calls her. He's like, hey, do you want to come over for dinner and a movie? And Sally is thinking, oh, how nice. It's Easter, you know, a little Easter dinner with Clarnell and Edmund. So she comes over and Edmund strangles her straight away and kills her. He then proceeded to perform his standard ritual, which was to decapitate Sally's head and then rape her headless body. He then stayed up all night with Sally's body, just hanging out on the couch, watching TV. (laughs) Look, let's be honest, he probably just sat there in silence. (laughs) Then the next morning, he put Sally's body in a cupboard with Clarnell's body and he left a note. The note said, Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. Got things to do. Approximately 5.15am Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick. Asleep. No pain. The way I wanted it. And then he left. So Edmund jumped in Sally's car and he started driving to Colorado. So let's now talk about how Edmund Kemper was caught. Because he wasn't really caught, he actually turned himself in. So basically, Edmund's left his mother's house and he's driving to Colorado, okay? And he's jing himself up because he's fled, all right? He's just murdered these two people and he's on the run. So he's packed Sally's car with three guns and 200 rounds of ammo. And he's cranked up the radio listening to the news. Now he's thinking, they're coming for me. It's going to be a manhunt, a massive operation, an OJ Simpson type of vibe. So he's anticipating an army of officers tracking him down as this widely known serial killer. So he's driving, for three days, popping nodos, caffeine pills, listening to the news, and he's waiting and waiting and waiting. And he's like, why are they talking about me? And then Edmund gets pulled over by a highway patrol officer for speeding. He gets a ticket, he gets let go, 
And after this, Edmund's pissed. He's like, what the fuck? I'm the co-ed serial killer. How come nobody knows? I just killed my mum. How come they haven't found her? So he arrives in Colorado. He finds a payphone. And what does he do? Same thing he does when he's 15 years old. He calls the police. So he calls the Santa Cruz police station and says, hi, my name is Edmund Kemper and I just killed my mother. Now the responder, she goes, oh, Edmund, big Ed, it's you. You're so funny. I hope you're having a really nice day. I'll talk to you later. Bye. So he gets hung up on and he's just standing there thinking, what do I do? So he just waits. So he waits for a few hours. Nothing happens. So he calls back. (laughs) And when he calls back, he specifically asks to speak with a police officer that he knows one of the officers that he knew from the jury room, right? So Edmund confesses. He says, I killed my mom. I killed her friend. And if you don't believe me, go to the house. And by the way, I killed all those co-eds. So the police went to Clarnell's home and they went inside to investigate. And when they opened the cupboard, they pulled back a sheet and saw blood and hair. And they discovered the two bodies of Clarnell Kemper and Sally Hallett, just as Edmund had described. So there were other officers that were heading out to Colorado. They picked up Edmund and he was arrested. So he was taken into custody. He was interviewed and he confessed straight away. Edmund said that the reason why he turned himself in and the reason why he confessed is because he could not handle it anymore. He said that he was emotionally exhausted and the whole experience weighed heavily on him. And he said that Clarnell was pretty much endgame. Once he killed her, that was it. He didn't have desire to kill anymore. And he said that he didn't want to live with any anxiety of having to look over his shoulder after the fact. So once Edmund confessed, he was subsequently charged with eight counts of first degree murder. And each count was for each one of his victims. And by the way, he was 24 years old. Now, despite Edmund's confession, he ended up going to trial because he pled not guilty by reason of insanity and he lawyered up. So while Edmund was awaiting trial, he had psychologists evaluate him and they found that he was fit to stand trial because he knew the difference between right and wrong and he fully understood the nature and the quality of his acts. But I should note, Um, Edmund did try to commit suicide twice before the trial um, and it was unsuccessful, but he tried to slash his wrists with a flattened ballpoint pen casing. I know that makes me uncomfortable too. I hate wrist stuff. It just freaks me out. Um, And he also tried to commit suicide two more times during the trial. So the trial commenced on the 23rd of October, 1973. So during the trial, the prosecution played Edmund's confession tapes, which would have been horrifying. And they also played a video confession tape from when Edmund first confessed to the police just after he was arrested. And they played this tape on purpose because they wanted to show the jury Edmund's attitude while he was recounting the details of the eight murders. Once the prosecution rested, the defense then argued their case and they argued that Edmund was not legally sane. They said that he lived in a fantasy world that he created to escape a society that he thought had rejected him. Then they called Edmund to the stand. (laughs) So Edmund testified at trial and... Look, it wasn't the best, so he explained that the reason why he committed the murders was because he saw women as possessions. 
He said that if he killed them, they couldn't reject him as a man. He also tried to convince the jury that he was insane and had two personalities. One was the killer with an abnormal mind and the other personality would then experience a blackout during the murders. But after five hours of deliberation, the jury returned a guilty verdict and Edmund was found guilty of eight counts of first-degree murder. It was at this time that Edmund then stood up in the courtroom and asked the judge to give him the death penalty, and he specifically requested death by torture. So the judge was like, um, thank you for the input, Edmund, but uh, you'll be getting life in prison. So Edmund was sentenced to eight life sentences to be served consecutively, and also, even if the judge wanted to sentence Edmund to death, he couldn't because in California at the time, there was a suspension on death sentences being administered, so he could only get a life sentence. Now, do I think he deserves the death penalty? Yeah, I'm going to say absolutely on this one. Um, when I think about the murders and how violent and gruesome they were, I think, fuck yes, public hanging for sure. And that's not disregarding his childhood. I 100% think that he was raised incorrectly and his mother was a terrible woman, but that's no excuse. I think a lot of shit things happen to people in life and you can either cope with it or you can't. And Edmund could not. I mean, I'm pretty sure he's not the first person where their parents have abandoned them. You know? So where's Edmund now? Well, he is still alive. He's still kicking. He's currently sitting in the California Medical Facility in Vacaville, California. And this is a state prison for inmates who require health care. Now, he's currently 72 years old and he's up for parole in 2024. <laughs> but apparently they're going to say no. Um, he's been denied parole multiple times. There's so many years. Um, I could go through them if you want. I mean, I'm as well. I'm already here. Uh, <laughs> 1979, 1980, 1981, 1982. Then he waived his right to parole in 1985. Then it came up in 1988. It was rejected. Then he's been denied parole in 1991, 1994, 2007 and 2017 and then he's also wavered his rights in between that as well one parole hearing that i actually will mention in a bit more detail was the 1988 one um, when they rejected him he got up at the hearing and he said quote society is not ready in any shape or form for me end quote but apparently edmund loves prison life um he's reportedly a model prisoner He's narrated audiobooks and he is a craftsman specializing in ceramic cups. He was also doing a little bit of admin work for the prison as well, where he would book psych appointments for the other prisoners, which is odd that he got these privileges again, because that really worked out well last time. But Edmund did have a stroke in 2015 and he is now medically disabled. So he actually had to retire from doing all these little activities. But I think in all of this, the best way to describe Edmund Kemper is in his own words, which is, I lived as an ordinary person most of my life even though I was living a parallel and increasingly violent other life. And this is why Edmund Kemper is a violent, narcissistic serial killer. And I definitely think he would fit into the type of killer who is the hedonistic, sadistic serial killer, lust category, organized type, 
just like Bundy, because Edmund Kemper was organized, intelligent, strategic, and aggressive in the way that he murdered his victims. He also hid the weapons and hid the bodies really well. And I think if it wasn't for him turning himself in and confessing, it is very possible that this entire killing spree could have either continued or maybe he would have stopped and the victims would still be regarded as missing. But I think it's pretty clear that Edmund has very obvious characteristics of NPD, APD, paranoia, and sadism, making him a malignant narcissist. Running through the traits, he lacks empathy, he's disengaged from his actions, he's deeply insecure and has low self-esteem, he had troubled relationships, especially with his family members, he seems like an ordinary guy, likable, friendly, and outgoing, but he had a violent dark side, and he used this persona to manipulate everyone and his victims. He's violent and aggressive, displayed this violence towards people and animals in his childhood. He fantasized about hurting people, enjoyed humiliating his victims, and enjoyed watching them experience pain. He continues to blame his mother for everything, never taking accountability, and he clearly has paranoia because he needed to confess and give himself in because he was worried about eventually getting caught. So yeah... That's Edmund Kemper. <laughs> and I think I'll be more empathetic towards a situation if he just killed his mom. Like if he just killed his mom, we'd get it. We'd understand. You know, it was years of abuse and trauma and hatred. So it makes sense. But he killed young, smart, intelligent women who were go-getters and they were aspiring to do something with their lives. And it's just really sad to me that their lives were cut short because of a selfish fucking asshole who had mummy issues. So yeah, I definitely think in this scenario, he should have just done a murder-suicide. Like even though <laughs> those situations are never good, I think it's fitting. You know, just kill your mom, kill yourself. Keep it in the family. Anyway, I'm gonna go. Thank you so much for listening to this one and uh, I'll see you on the next one. Bye.